I want to mention a couple of things before we look at God's word together. Um, uh, the first, the first is um, it's wonderful that and, and awesome to have Mother's Day. It's, it's. I have a great wife who's been a fantastic mom. My mom was a very sacrificial mom. Um, but over the last few years, I've realized that that Mother's Day can also be a bittersweet day. Um, the last number of years, my, my daughter and son-in-law have been trying to have a child. My, my daughter, if you don't know it, is probably one of the people I adore most in all the world. And she pretty much can get anything out of me she ever wants. And uh, it's been kind of that way since she was born. But um, I think she's one of those that was just made to be a mom. And she works with children. She's a children's pastor. And yet it's been a heartbreaking thing for these years to to long for a child and not to be able to have a child. And so I know, kind of talking with her, praying with her on Mother's Day, that Mother's Day is not the easiest day for her. And while we we're all have moms and we honor our moms, sometimes it is one of those tough things to go through. And, and so as Ashley was praying today, we're, we're, we're not just honoring those who are moms, but also we want the Lord to be with in a powerful way and you to recognize that worth and value comes from who you are in Christ. And uh, whether you're a woman or a man, whether you're a mother or not a mom, our worth and our value is established by the cross. And um, just sense the Lord's tenderness today with us, uh, both uh, in the joys of motherhood and in the, the pain of both motherhood and of losing and or of not even seeing that dream realized. The second thing today is... Um, We've, we realize that as a church, um, we want to live in a way that's counter to the culture. And we live in a very sexually charged culture. And there's so many access points of, of ways that destroy people's purity, their faithfulness. It's not unusual even on a, a Sunday while, during worship that, that people have pornographic images run through their minds or blasphemous thoughts come through their minds. And what we found is that a lot of men who long to be close to Jesus feel like they're disqualified because of sexual sin in their life. And so some of our, some of our key leaders, some of our, our, our men believe that God has called us as, as a church to begin to go into this fight together and to believe God when he says you should reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. And to begin to see not just defeat in these areas, but actually to see a victory in the areas of purity and the areas of faithfulness. And so beginning in June at 8 o'clock on Saturday mornings, which means only the truly strong will survive, uh, at 8 o'clock on Saturday mornings, a series called Conquer is going to begin led by some of our trusted leaders here. It will be a place of transparency. It will be a place of vulnerability, of safety, but it will also be a place of victory. It will begin the first Saturday in June. And it's not only, you know, it's not open just to the men of our church. It's open to anyone who truly wants to come and say, Lord, how can I become a faithful and pure and, and holy and righteous man? So I think it's going to be an awesome opportunity. It's, it's one of our goals for the summer to see what God will do. The course itself is, is really dynamic and it's, uh, it's going to be led by some of our very trusted leaders. Now, if you will, turn in your, your bulletin to the scripture on the first page here. We've been going through the book of Hebrews. The, 
the people that this is written to originally were people who lived in urban centers, the very populated areas of the earth. They were places where there were many, many religions, cultures, multicultural, multi-religious. But to be a Christian was to be marginalized. It was to lose status. It was to lose even the ability to have a job. Oftentimes your own family would reject you. But the culture itself was against Christianity at this time. Uh, there had been a season right before the writing of this letter. There had been a season in which those who were believers and part of the church were actually thrown into prison and many of them had experienced torture. As this was happening, people in the church, many of them renounced the faith and went back to their old religions. As they did that, they these others were sustaining their faith, going through really, really difficult times. When the persecution ended, these some of the people who had fallen away started coming back to church. So you can imagine the tension in a gathering like this. If you looked across the way and saw somebody that when you were being tortured, they had left the faith and they had gone back to their old religion, or how you would feel guilty when you look and you see the, the wounds and the scars that somebody who had been faithful through the entire time is sitting there next to you. And so there's, this, there's, a, there's a, a lessening of persecution, but now there's a riff in the church. There's a, a, a place of division and hurt. And that the question that keeps coming up, and the question to which this letter is written, because primarily this letter is a pastoral letter. The one writing this is trying to pastor in an intense way this church. So there's theology here, but primarily it's, 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 it's trying to get the people over all of these hardships that they've been through. Because where they're at is they want to give up. They have been asked the question, if, if, if God loves us, why is it so difficult? We're Christians. Why is being a Christian so hard? And they were on the verge of giving up. Both those who felt ostracized because they had failed and those who had, had gone through the imprisonment times and persecution times were looking at these others and saying, how can they be apart when they ran away when it got tough? And so the, the answer that the writer gives is an ever-growing revelation of who Jesus is. Instead of answering, why, did, why is it so hard? Instead of answering, why is it so tough to be a Christian? He just, he just keeps saying, will you fix your eyes on Jesus? Will you look at Jesus? One of the great writers, spiritual writers said this, God doesn't give answers, he gives himself. We often are saying, why God? Why God? And he's saying, look at me. Let me show you who I am. So we are, we're at a place where he's going to show something deeply about Jesus, who he is, how he works, and what he does for you. So will you read with me the scripture? It's from Hebrews chapter 7. I like it when we as a church read God's word together. So let's read out loud. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. 
The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now we're going to talk a little bit about <clears throat> how Jesus becomes better than any other religious person has ever been or could ever be in your life. And the, the way that this writer contrasts and at the same time announces and reveals Jesus' ministry to you is he uses a word in verse 25 where he says that even now, the Lord Jesus is ever living to make intercession for you. Now, intercession is a priestly word or a religious kind of word, a spiritual word, and could be, could be translated another way, could say he's praying for you. But in this case, it is not so much that Jesus is praying for you. It is more the idea that of the legal aspect of this term. When you intercede for someone, you become an advocate for them. You become someone who represents them by substituting yourself, your life, your performance, your arguments for them. What this writer is saying is that under the law, under the old, even the old covenant, and with the old covenant priest, you did not have ever an adequate advocate. And one of the reasons that he says that you did not have an adequate advocate is because the ones advocating for you, these priests, were just as flawed as you are. They were just as corrupt as you are. And so when they made sacrifice for you, they also first had to make sacrifices for themselves. That The second thing that he says that makes this system so flawed and, and weak and then, and, and completely calls it useless is that they died. And even today, if you have somebody who's a spiritual mentor, somebody who pastors you and you love your pastor or, or you love your youth pastor or whatever it is, that person is not going to be with you forever. They do not have an indestructible life. Either you move, they move, you die, they die, but they will not be able to be with you. And besides that, when it comes to standing before the court of heaven, there's not a single pastor you've ever had or minister you've ever had or priest you've ever had who can advocate for you because they need someone to advocate for them. And so this writer says, though the law itself is perfect, the law in no way could ever perfect you. The purpose of the law, friends, was to reveal and expose how far from God you are. It was in no way an attempt to draw you near to God. The, 
the law reveals, the law cannot save. And so what he says is God had always intended a different way so that you could draw near to God with confidence. As a matter of fact, the conclusion or the application of all that I'm going to unpack for you today are three things that I would like you to leave here with and then have in your life an ever-increasing abundance. The one is that if you have Jesus as your advocate, you should have absolute confidence. You should have an indestructible confidence, not only about where you're going after you die, but also how you're living right now. Because you... If you are in Christ, you have a new identity. You have an identity that is, that is connected to or in union with his indestructible life. The second thing in this passage that, that is the application of Jesus as your, as your advocate is that you can live your life with, with a, an absolutely clear conscience. This is amazing to most people because most people do not have a clear conscience. They might have a, a denial conscience or they might have an excusing themselves kind of conscience. But what we have when Jesus is truly your advocate is that you have all your guilt satisfied and you can live with a clear conscience, which makes an amazing difference in the way you not only relate to yourself, but the way you relate to everyone else. And then the last kind of application, if Jesus is truly your advocate, he's the real advocate, then what happens is you, ha you, you, you begin to experience an indestructible courage because it's no longer about you. You see, when people, when people are arrogant and, and put forth themselves all the time as I'm better than or I'm the best or I'm, I compare favorably to other people, Basically, they are using pride in a way to support what their ego thinks matters but really doesn't matter. And then when people are shy and they feel inferior, their pride is simply saying hide because you're, you don't want them to know how weak and how failing and how frail you are. And it's only when Jesus has become not only the one who prays for you, but the one who advocates for you, who is your legal representative, that instead of you appearing before the court of God, he's appearing in your place. He becomes your substitute. You are in him. Therefore, it's his performance that matters. Even in an earthly court, even in an earthly court, it's not the client's performance that matters to get the client free. It's the lawyer's performance. If the lawyer can convince the jury, which we've seen, lawyers can often convince the jury that a bad person is good. And so it's the lawyer's performance. Jesus is offering himself in all of what he's done in his earthly ministry and what he's doing now in heaven for you. He is offering to go in your place. He's offering so that his performance substitutes for your performance. He will not and does not, as he's advocating for you, he is not pleading mercy. I mean, you can understand this. Even from, even from our, lim you know, I don't have much legal experience, but I've watched a lot of law and order. <laughs> we know it's completely accurate. But if you ever watch a program or you've ever been in a court setting, if a lawyer is asking for mercy, 
He's asking for mercy because he doesn't have a case. Because the person is guilty. So Jesus is not in heaven advocating for you so that you can get mercy. This is why a courage begins to rise up when you realize Jesus doesn't take your case if he doesn't have a case. Because he's not going to plead mercy. He's going to plead justice. He's going to ask for the justice of God. And you're sitting there going, how is that good for me? Well, it's good for you in this way. If he's paid the price for your sins, then the Father's never going to ask for a second payment. And the resurrection, yeah, that's, it's worthy of that. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the receipt that says the debt is paid. It will never have to be paid again. See, as we look at, at, at this advocate and why we need this advocate, the writer says he is a priest like no priest has ever been before. You see, in the Old Testament, what was established is a priesthood by biology. A priesthood by, by bodily descent. In other words, if your father was a Levi and you're a Levi, you get to be a priest. If you're not a Levi and you're not of the tribe of Levi, one of Jacob's 12 sons, then you didn't get to be a priest. And so you became a priest just because of who your father was and who your grandfather was. It didn't matter if you had character. It didn't matter if you had any anointing. It didn't matter if you were good or bad. Because of your biology, you were a priest. And so in many ways, the priesthood was doomed to end. Because you need more of an advocate than somebody who's as broken and bankrupt and corrupt as you are. And some of you know that when somebody gets power, they become even more broken. And they manifest even greater bankruptcy. Because in some ways, the greater the power, the more the corruption seems to manifest. And so what God had planned all along is God had planned a priesthood that had no beginning and a priesthood that had no end, a priesthood that would reside in one single person, and that person was the Lord Jesus Christ. And this writer of the book of Hebrews, he goes back to the Old Testament. He goes back to a, an obscure passage and then a second obscure passage. The first passage is in Genesis chapter 14. And then he goes to a messianic psalm in Psalm 110. And he sees that there's a priest who has been ordained by God, who's been vowed over, who's been given an oath by God that this was going to be a priest forever. And it brings out this obscure name after the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is a little bit of Bible history, a little bit of Bible theology right now. Melchizedek is a an obscure, somewhat enigmatic figure that shows up in Genesis 14 just for a moment, it seems like. It seems like he comes out of nowhere and then he goes back to nowhere. And there are people that have often said, they're like, who is this Melchizedek? Well, there's a couple of things that the scripture tells us about him that relate so carefully and so perfectly to Jesus. First, he's the king over an area that's called Shalom. So he is the king of peace. Ever heard that about Jesus? As a matter of fact, it says Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Now, the problem for most of us is that we look at Prince through the eyes of Disney. 
Prince Charming or Sleeping Beauty or the theology of Cinderella or whatever it might be. And so suddenly we got this idea of some kind of romantic figure. In the Bible, a prince is not a romantic figure. It's a powerful figure because prince means someone who is sovereign over a principality. So the principality of this king is the whole realm of peace. And then it says, his name is Melchizedek, which is a, a combination of two words in Hebrew. The one is the word king, and the other word is righteousness. So here we have this, this figure in Genesis 14. He's the king of peace, and he's the king of righteousness. Can you get a better type for Jesus? Now, he's not Jesus. Some people say, is that Jesus showing up in the Old Testament? No, it says here, he resembled the Son of God. He was like the Son of God. When you resemble something, you're not that thing. For example, some of, some of us, when we get, you go to your mother's brec, whatever, brunch or lunch or whatever it's going to be, and there are relatives there, they're going to go, you look just like... And they always pick the relation you least want to be like. Or, they, you know, particularly if they're insulting you, they pick the one they don't like. And they're like, you're just like, and you're like, I'm not them. In the same way, Melchizedek is like Jesus, but he's not Jesus. Or it would say, he was Jesus. Guess who Melchizedek is? He's Melchizedek. Okay, so he's, he, he's a real person. And what happened is that he came out to meet Abraham. You've heard of Abraham. Abraham's a big deal in the Bible. So Abraham, he comes out to meet Abraham, and Abraham has just won a huge battle. And he, he's rescued his nephew Lot. And he's coming back, and the king of Salem, the king of peace, the king of righteousness meets him. Now in the Bible, there's an interesting kind of um, theological truth in the Bible, you never, I never, no one ever has ever made a choice that all our descendants weren't making with us. So the way that the Bible looks at it is that whoever follows you, son, daughter, granddaughter, grandson, whoever follows you is making a choice in you. So that because your DNA is in them and they will come from your DNA. And so every choice that you make, and many of us, we think, I'm just making this for myself. But the truth is, every choice you make is affecting every generation that follows you. Good choices, bad choices are going to affect the generations to come. And so what the Bible says is that Abraham honored, paid tribute, even sacrificed a tithe, which is the highest of tributes that you could do in a spiritual religious sense, he pays a tithe to Melchizedek, to this king of peace, this king of righteousness. And then he says, And his great-grandson, Levi, through whom all the priesthood of the law came, was himself in Abraham, making a tribute, honoring, and making a sacrifice to Melchizedek, showing the superiority of Melchizedek, even over Abraham, even over Levi. And what he's trying to say in that, and I don't want to get too caught up in it, but it's, a it's an amazing kind of biblical principle here, is that God was setting up, apart from the law, God was setting up a way 
For you to draw near, not through the frailty of other humans. For you to draw near to God, not through the, the religious activity or the religious strategy of self-salvation. He was trying to do what you could not do for yourself. He was making a way through a priest that was unlike any priest that has ever existed before, who would become your representative, your advocate, your substitute, so that you begin to live in the indestructible life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you hearing me? Alan does, so I'll keep going. Now, how do I understand, how do we begin to understand the nature of this advocacy that, that Jesus, this, this priest after the order of Melchizedek? Well, I think that one of the ways you see it is in the way that he operated with people. One of the stories in which the gospel writers give us is a story of a woman who gets caught in adultery. As she's caught in adultery, there are all kinds of self-righteous, all kinds of judgmental people who decide we gotta, we've got to purge our society and our culture and our, our community from this wicked woman. And so they take up stones with all kinds of righteous indignation and they're about to stone her. They're about to kill her. And Jesus says, well, let the one of you who has no sin throw the first stone. And then Jesus just kind of bends down and the scripture says that he starts writing in the, in the dirt, writing in the sand. Now, tradition says, maybe it's a legend, but it makes sense to me, is he started writing the sins of the people with the stones. <laughs> Lust, lying, covetousness, Sabbath breaker, not honoring your mother on Mother's Day. <laughs> And then when he looked up, there was no one there. And the woman's still there. Interesting, she didn't run. Something about Jesus, she didn't want to run. And he looks at her and says, where are your, where are your accusers? They've all left. And he says, well, neither do I condemn you. And then he says, go and send no more. Now, this is such an important thing to get. He had the power to condemn her. He had the right to condemn her. He didn't say to her, you know what, everybody does it, it's okay. Don't feel bad. No, he said, I don't condemn you. And then he says, but go and sin no more. Think about this with me. Okay? This is where the confidence starts to come if you let him be your advocate. He is the only one who can give you an identity that's not based on your behavior. Think about this. If someone lies, our first thing is to take a stone and say, You're a liar! Someone cheats on us. You're an adulterer. You're unfaithful. We, we begin not just to identify their behavior. We start to call them by their behavior. We start to say, You are what you do. And Jesus looks at this woman and she, he says this, I don't base my love on your behavior, but I'm asking, will you base your behavior on my love? It's a complete turnaround. You see, grace messes everything up. 
Because grace is neither justice nor injustice. It's a whole new category. This is why I have absolute confidence. I don't have confidence in my ability to keep the law. As a matter of fact, can I just make this really clear to you? You have no advocate. You have no defense. You have no one substituting for you if the basis of your relationship with God is performance. You are your own lawyer if your basis of drawing near to God is how well you perform. It has to be grace or it's nothing. And so here's this woman. She's as low on the, on the, the societal status as can be. And he says, I do not base my love on your behavior, but I'm asking you to base your behavior on my love. Let me just, I want to hit a couple things quickly. I know our time is running shorter. But here's this thing that Jesus, in this idea of Melchizedek, he's a priest like no other priest. He's the king and the priest at the same time. A king is a lawgiver. A king is the enforcer of the law. A priest is the support of the people, representing the people to God. Here you have in this one place where you have a king and a priest together, Jesus, the priest king, he's so committed absolutely to holiness. I mean, if any of you ever begin to think the way society's even talking about Jesus, it's not Jesus, friends. Jesus is utterly committed to holiness. His DNA is justice. But at the same time, he's absolutely committed to love, acceptance, and support. He is king and priest in one person, like there's never been before. And the place where it comes together is on the cross. On the cross, he, the king, bears the consequences of us breaking the law. I love this phrase. I guess it kind of wrecked me a bit. What you see on the cross is infinite love honoring infinite justice. Infinite love honoring infinite truth. I've had people come up to me and say, you know, you push this Jesus stuff way too much. And they're like, they're like, they look at me and say, I'm spiritual, I just don't need this Jesus stuff. And so I asked them a question. I learned it from somebody else, but I asked them this question. I said, does your God forgive you? They're like, of, of course he does. He knows I'm human. He forgives me. I said, well, how much does it cost your God to forgive you? Well, it costs him nothing. I said, well, that's what it's worth. Because it costs my God everything to forgive me. So his love for me costs him everything. That's why I can have such confidence in His love. That's why I can know my conscience can be cleansed from guilt and shame. Is because of what it cost Him to love me. It's not a cheap thing. Can you hear me in this? Here's what John Newton had to say. I love John Newton. He wrote Amazing Grace. This is one of his other hymns. He says, To see the law by Christ fulfilled... To hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. You see, when Jesus said, neither do I condemn you, you know why he could say that? It wasn't because he was excusing or giving her a reason for her sin. You know, you couldn't help yourself. It's not any of that stuff. It's because he said, I'm taking your condemnation on me. He could speak as her advocate, not because she wasn't a woman caught in adultery. 
he could speak as her advocate because he had taken her adultery onto himself. She was clean because she was listening to him. It's an amazing truth. Now, that's the nature of his advocacy. Let me, let me just let me push a little bit on you about why do you need an advocate? Well, I mean, the main reason that you need an advocate is because every single day of your life, you're on trial. Whether you're conscious of it or not, you're always trying to prove yourself. You're always trying to, to you know, at least put forth an image that, that other people will say, oh, you, you look okay, you're smart, you're this, you're that. And yet, at the same time, it is amazing that no matter how hard you try, there can almost always be somebody who just says something that wrecks your world. No matter how hard you try. In my first pastorate in, in Atlanta, uh, I had been there for, uh, I started the church, had been gone for a couple of years. I'm walking out the door to greet the people as, the, as they leave the service, and this lady comes up to me and she goes, I just want you to know you're not a handsome man. She goes, you're not even good looking, but you do wear your clothes well. It's almost 30 years ago I heard that. And still to this day, I'm like, why did she say that to me? I mean, it's fine you don't think I'm handsome, but why tell me? Just keep it to yourself, you know? I mean, it's a fascinating thing. People think they have the right even to give you their judgments. And to, in some way, you know... Make it known to you in some way how deficient or how lacking or how you know, incompetent or unacceptable you are. Well, you need a pronouncement from somebody other than yourself that says you have worth. In the same way that you can't just pronounce yourself forgiven and it have any meaning. You can't just simply go, I'm not going to let that hurt me. I'm not going to let it mean anything to me. You'll remember. I, that was 28 years ago. I can still remember her face. She was, and she wasn't that attractive either. I don't know why she said that. I mean, in my gift of sarcasm, I was thinking, who are you to talk? <laughs> But see, let me just say this to you. Even if I had got her back, it wouldn't change what she said about me. I, I bet there are a bunch of you that you walk away from stuff like that, you go, oh, I got a great one. I wish I had said that. <laughs> Here's the problem. Even if you did, it wouldn't change what it said about you. See, almost every day you're litigating. Almost every day you're in court. And there are unexpected people who can speak into your worth that can devastate you. Listen, listen to a secular voice talk about this. There's a play by Arthur Miller called After the Fall. It's a really interesting play. It didn't uh, get a lot of critical success, but it's, it's a powerful play. Um, because it's after the death of Marilyn Monroe, who he was married to. And the play is basically him like processing his guilt over not saving her and having abandoned her in their marriage and leaving her because of his own selfishness. And so he has a character that's the voice of Marilyn Monroe and he has a character that's his own voice. And his, his own voice is spoken in the character named Quentin. Here's what he says in summing up 
how he was dealing with his guilt. Listen to this. For many years, I looked at life like a case at law. It was a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or smart. Then what a good lover. Then a good father. Finally, how wise or powerful or whatever. But underlying it all, I see now there was a presumption that one moved on an upward path towards some elevation where God knows that I would be justified or even condemned, a verdict anyway. I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty, no judge in sight, and all that remained was the endless argument with oneself, this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which of course is another way of saying despair. This, this is such a fascinating dealing with this constantly being under trial of, of, of having such a drive to prove oneself's worth, but not just to other people, to something outside of yourself. And he came to a place of despair because he says, I'm trying to prove it to a God who doesn't exist. But isn't it an interesting thing, as smart as this guy is, as sophisticated as he is, doesn't the drive itself tell you that someone's on the bench? The fact I need not just your approval or you to... Because you could say how wonderful I am and I'd still go, yeah, but you love me or you're my, you know, you're my mom or, you know, whatever it is. And I would discount it because I would say, well, you have to say that. There's this, there's this inner thing inside of us that's going, I need someone who's outside of my realm who utterly say to me, I have worth. And to settle that issue. Because if that issue gets settled, then I have courage. Well, there's a man named Stephen. And he was one of the first preachers. He was one of the first martyrs of the church. And the whole of the, the religious community turned against him. And they condemned him. And they said, you're only worthy for stoning and for death. And Stephen, it says, as he was being stoned, had a face that glowed. It was radiant like Moses' face when he would meet with the, the manifest presence of God. And the reason was, the Bible tells us, is that when he looked up, he saw a vision of the majesty of God. But what he saw was his advocate. And his advocate, who... Normal position is seated at the right hand of the Father. His advocate is not seated, but standing up and leaning into the situation. And here's what Stephen knew. Doesn't matter what some temporary court condemns. The ultimate court has commended me. You see, when you realize it doesn't matter what the temporary courts say about you, because they don't know. But the one who knows you all the way to the bottom loves you all the way to the top. And when you're in trouble, he's not seated at the right hand of the Father. He's standing up for you. And when he stands up, he's not going, Oh, Father, they're doing it again. He's going, Father, I paid the price for this one. And you'll never ask a second price. Here's what I want you to get. Can you stay with me a few more minutes? Here's what I want you to get. 
most of us, what's going on is we still don't get Christianity. We still don't get what the gospel really says to us. That's why we don't have courage. That's why we don't have clear consciences. That's why we don't have this sense of confidence. Here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote about this. And it's interesting because Arthur Miller talked about despair. This comes from a book called Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures. Now listen what he has to say. He's a great old British preacher. To make it quite practical, I have a very simple test. After I have explained the way of Christ to somebody, I say, now are you ready to say that you're a Christian? And they hesitate. And then I say, what's the matter? Why are you hesitating? And so often people say, I don't feel like I'm good enough yet. I don't think I'm ready to say I'm a Christian now. And at once I know that I have been wasting my breath. They are still thinking in terms of themselves. They have to do it, they think. It sounds very modest to say, well, I don't think I'm good enough. But it's a very denial of the faith. The very essence of the Christian faith is to say that He is good enough and I am in Him. As long as you go on thinking about yourself like that and saying, I'm not good enough, oh, I'm not good enough, you're denying God. You're denying the Gospel. You're denying the very essence of the faith and you will never be happy. You think you're better at times and then again you'll find you're not as good at other times as you thought you were. You'll be up and down forever. How can I put it plainly? It doesn't matter if you've almost entered the gates, the depths of hell. It doesn't matter if you're guilty of murder as well as every other vile sin. It doesn't matter from the standpoint of being justified before God at all. You are no more hopeless than the most moral and respectable person in the world. Let me, let me finish with a story that, that sort of impacts this. Lisa was doing this incredible uh, counseling warfare session with a, a, a young woman. And the young woman loves Jesus. The love, young woman is creative. The young woman is beautiful. You know what she hears in her voice? You're not good enough. She hears a voice in her head. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. Don't try that. If you try that, you're going to fail. If you fail, you'll not have any worth. You'll not have any value. She's not only being tried by the court of public opinion, she's being tried by a demon in her own head. You know what she needs? Of course she needs deliverance. Of course you've got to get rid, rid of the demons. But the problem is, if those demons don't have ground, they don't, they don't stay. It's because we hear those things and we believe those things. I don't care how demonically influenced you are, you still have a will. And that will can still say, look, that's not from God. And when, it, and when you hear you're not pretty enough, you go, Jesus is. And when you hear you're not smart enough, Jesus is the Son of God. He's wisdom incarnate. When you hear you might fail, you'll say, but Jesus never failed. See, it's not about thinking less of yourself. It's not about thinking more of yourself. It's actually about thinking of yourself entirely less altogether. But as long as it's about you, you'll never be smart enough, pretty enough, beautiful enough, and no one will ever be able to tell you it enough for you to actually believe it. See, you need an advocate. You need an advocate who can give you confidence. An advocate who can clear your conscience. And an advocate who can give you courage. There's this one last picture I want to I put before you. All this talk really is about a high priest. 
Here's the best. Here's the very best that religion can do. Takes an old failing man, all his wrinkles and his gray hair and his fallen apart body. And it takes him and it dresses him up. And so on his head, basically covering him all except his eyes and his mouth, on his head are jewels and gold and silver and all this stuff. So basically you don't see him, you don't see his head, you don't see his face all that much. You just see how beautiful the jewels are and how beautiful the gold is and how valuable it is. And then they they would take him and they would put a, a garment on him that would cover him from head to toe. And again, they would they would put it with jewels and gold and silver. So you don't see this decrepit, ancient, old man who's failing. You just see the beauty of the jewels. See, that's the best religion can do. Is to give you something beautiful to hide behind. Or to hide in. But the problem is, it only has worth in this life. It doesn't have any worth in the life to come. Instead, what's offered here in the book of Hebrews is Jesus. He doesn't need gold. He doesn't need jewels. He's the fairest of 10,000. You've never even seen gold till you see the sash that's around his waist that is his belt. You've never seen the purity of the color of white until you've seen the radiance of the glory of the whiteness of his garment. You've never yet heard how the ripple of the sea can come through someone's voice until he opens up his resurrected and glorified voice. And wisdom, it flows like like gray wool from his head and you look and you just are in awe so much so that even his closest disciples fell down as one dead when they saw when they saw this priest king and he's the one that offers to stand up for you now it seems stupid to stand up for yourself all my years of studying law and order tells me that only really foolish people defend themselves. And you're offered the king and the priest. Will you stand with me? You know, I, I loved Jesus for many years. I followed him. I served him. But what I said to you, what I read to you from Dr. Lloyd-Jones, I really didn't get for the longest time. I kept saying, Lord, I want to be a better person. Lord, I promise to do better. Lord, I commit myself to being more pure, more faithful. And all it did was frustrate me. Didn't have a clear conscience. Had some courage that would come out of my anger, but not courage that really came from a place of of real purity and health. Had confidence sometimes because for some reason God made me with a brain that's more confident than I should be. But there is nothing like when you realize it's not about me. I don't have to be beautiful. I don't have to hide behind some gold or silver or some jewels. I'm hidden in Christ. 
It's funny, hidden in Christ and yet completely transparent. Awesome thing. You understand, he's not up there going, oh, give him a second chance. He's up there saying, Lord, Father, you'll never take a second payment. You do not have to leave here today with any guilt. You see, Jesus on the cross abolished your guilt. And Jesus before the throne never brings it back up. And as beautiful as Jesus is, that's how beautiful you are. But you have to have an advocate. I know we're running late. It's Mother's Day. I'm sorry. But I have sensed the Lord so strongly. If you just sense there's something where you want to, you, you don't want to leave here without a clear conscience, confidence, and courage. Will you just join me up here? Will you come up here and, and just receive, in a sense, just say, Lord, I'm coming to take hold of my advocate, my priest, my king, I'm coming to connect again to the indestructible life. To have a confidence that no one else can destroy. To have a conscience that no one else can condemn. To have a courage that life itself cannot diminish. Just this sense. It's not a big deal. I I don't know what Jesus is going to do here. I just sense... He's wanting us to to take hold of this. To not let this day go by. I invite any of you that, you know, I don't don't know where your spiritual journey is. Some of you, you've, you've been religious, but Jesus is saying, I'm tired of your religion. You don't need to self save, you need an advocate. Today's the day. Say, Lord Jesus, I don't want to leave here. I want to know my sins are forgiven. I want to know. It's so beautiful. You know what the promise of this passage we read today? It says, He is able to save to the uttermost. He is able to save completely. And then it says this. It's, he's not a reluctant Savior. It says, He lives to do this. This is who He is. This is what He does. He lives to save. If you were listening at all, you realize if you're hearing a voice saying you're not good enough, it's not God. Because God says, Jesus is good enough. And your heart says, Jesus is good enough. You hear a voice saying, I'm not smart enough. Tomorrow I'll fail again. You say, so what? Jesus won't fail tomorrow. So what? You'll realize, you'll realize. What, what ground does Satan have if Jesus is your advocate? What ground does he have? He brings up your past. You say, yeah, let's have a, let's have a Thanksgiving and praise service right now. My conscience is clear because of my advocate. My confidence is clear because of my advocate. My courage is clear. Will you say this with me? I receive the advocacy of Jesus, my priest king, my king of peace, my king of righteousness, my representative, my substitute. In you I place my confidence. 
In you my conscience is clear. My guilt is abolished. My courage arises. Now let this, let this be the reason for your courage. It does not matter what an earthly court says about you. When the heavenly court commends you. Will you say this with me? No court can condemn me. If the court of heaven is commending me. If God be for me. Then who can be against me? Is that not a source of courage? Say it again with me. If God be for me. Who can be against me? Jesus, even the Apostle Paul even placed Jesus this way. He said, if Jesus doesn't condemn you, who is the only one who has a right to condemn you, then who else can lay a charge against you? Do you mind just being strong right now and saying, I renounce every condemning accusation, every charge that I've heard in my mind or in people's mouths, I reject that. I am in Christ. Lord, we, uh, we seal what you're doing now. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 We have uh, people that love to pray after the service with you. If there's anything you'd like to pray about, happy Mother's Day. I'm glad you were here today. Hug a bunch of people.